Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. How do I have a good life? How do I have a happy life or a peaceful life? This is how do I obtain eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest uh, me good? There is none good but God that is God, but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth, which is where I get my first question. You've, you've honored your mother and father every day since you were a child? Mm. I'm not sure I'm 100% agreeing with him here. You've kept every commandment. You've never bared false witness of any kind ever in your life. But Jesus doesn't do what I would do there. Jesus doesn't operate as humanity does, Jesus lets him say that even though there's a high probability that is not a true statement. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give it to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Come take up the cross and follow me. Amen. I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to talk to not just the fathers. I want to talk to the men today. And uh, if you are a woman that does not give you permission to sleep (laughs) or leave or play on your phone. (sighs) Just throwing that last one out there. But I think there are obviously lessons we can all learn, and maybe it would speak to some of us on some level if we'll just open our hearts. The gospel gives us the account of what we now call the rich young ruler. You actually have to read all of the gospels and all of the accounts for to get the rich, the young, and the ruler part. They all kind of reference it in a different way. This descriptive title that is given to this young man gives us some of the core elements, I'm going to call them, of man's battle today. It's always really been man's battle, but it gives us some of the core elements. It's not that women cannot have these same battles in their own ways, but these are, if I could illustratively speak it as such, uh, these are rivers that each man must cross if they are going to truly become who God wants them to be. I wonder if they're just off the bat, are there any men here today that would say, I really want to be the man, the father, the husband. I really want to be the one God wants me to be. Can I get some men to say amen? 
Amen. And so to do that, there are some things uh, that some rivers we must cross. And the Bible shows us this young man, and he begins uh, in this title that he has been given down through the ages of the rich, young uh, ruler, the need to be rich, young, and powerful. These are all boundaries of growth in a man's life. They are like rivers that a man must cross uh, to be who God wants him to be. The need to be rich. The need to be rich. I'm not preaching against wealth today. You're never going to hear me preach against wealth. But biblical understandings of money are very, very important. And in fact, the biblical concept and biblical approach to money would save a lot of men a lot of heartache today. The need to be rich is instilled in us at an early age. It's almost innate, but it's not innate. God did not put that in us. It matters not if you are raised in wealth or if you are raised in poverty or somewhere in between. The wealthy boy feels pressure to remain wealthy. The wealthy child feels the pressure to maintain what has been brought down to them, passed down to them, or given to them, or to maintain the lifestyle of which they were raised in. And, uh, and they can battle with certain things, and they can battle with certain ideals. There is a battle of the attitude of entitlement that is a real struggle in our society today that I am owed something, that I deserve something, that somebody should give me more than what I already have. And even those that are raised in poverty seek to break free from their perceived curse and not knowing the dangers and the pitfalls associated with monetary gain that Jesus speaks of routinely in the Bible. It's not that God thinks that wealth is somehow a sin. He simply points out routinely that wealth Wealth is an added burden to the believer. That it can make some things harder than they need to be. And that it can cause you to struggle. And it can cause you to waste some good years. And it can cause you to destroy your body or your mind. Or it can cause you to destroy your relationships. Or God forbid, even destroy that, uh, that precious relationship even with your own children desiring to have more. Got to have more. Got to have more. And unfortunately, I find one of the most uh, uh, desperate attempts of justification today is I got to have more so I can give it to my children. I got to have more so I can ha they can have a better life than I did. I had ha got to have more. But if you will hear what some of the men have already said here today, and if you'll listen to your own heart, uh, there is so much more in this life, more precious and valuable than a dollar bill handed into the hand of a child. There is so much more, more precious than leaving them a few dollars when you're all said and done. There is something about the connection. There is something about the precious power of present being there. You cannot put a price tag on being there. Oh, hallelujah. The need to be rich so that a man can have the right look, own the right tools or the right toys, so that a man can somehow earn the respect of those that he craves it from. Yet so many wealthy are not respected at all. 
but all men must come to the banks of this river and decide on whether or not they're going to lay down their roots there at the need to be wealthy, at the need to make more money, at the need to have more things. Decide if they're going to set up camp there and raise their family along the shores of the need for the more, the almighty dollar. If their life will be determined by the need for wealth or if they will cross over and live in the promises of God who said, I shall supply all your need. Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, I, my God, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God shall supply. God shall supply. What we are missing, men, hear me today, what we are missing when we are camping by the river of the need for more money in our life is that what we are actually doing is putting ourselves in a place of God. Or we are saying to God, what you have given me is not enough. So I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. God forbid. Pastor, we were having a lot more fun a couple minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this while we were all dancing and laughing and smiling there. I was like, well, enjoy it while you can. <laughs> the reality of it is, as I went to prayer and study this week, uh, I, I, the very first thought that came to my mind was, you know, just, let's just be nice and pump up the men and pat them on the back. And the world's always trying to tear them down. Let's just, let's just make them feel good and have a good thing. And, and then God was like, yeah, you've done that like three years in a row. So we're going to do something different. <laughs> okay. So you, your problem's with him. It's not me. I wanted to be nice today. It is a destructive thing when we forget God's place and God's promise that he would supply our needs and instead we take on the burden of that for ourselves and in the process of taking on that burden, we replace ourselves where God is supposed to be. Nobody's telling you not to work hard. You've never heard me say that. Nobody's telling you to just lay around and then get some lemonade, enjoy it until all the money's gone, and then say, well, okay, God, now what? You've never heard me say that. But this need for more is killing men today. And this need for more is providing way too much justification for absent fathers to say it's all right that I'm never here because I'm paying the bills. God is saying you can be there and pay the bills. God is saying you can be a father. The role that he has shown us in the Bible to be the present, almighty, loving, kind, gracious father who provides for his children. He says you can do that. Oh, hallelujah. And pay the bills at the same time. And I wish if there was somebody in this house that believed that today, you would clap your hands and say, thanks be to God who provides my needs. 
need to be rich is an ongoing battle. The need to be young. This is less about what we glean from our parents and more about our susceptibility to vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, the writer says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In verse 7, he says, All the rivers, they run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Solomon uses this word vanity, and this word vanity often means, as it does here, it's empty, it's transitory, it's unsatisfactory. It's vanity. He was in the unique position, after all, Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. He was also in the unique position of being a rich, young ruler. He decided to do it all. Why not? He could. He could do whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it. Money was never an option for him. He had all of the power. He had all of the position. Everybody did what he wanted them to do. And so he says, I decided to do it all. In Ecclesiastes 1, 13 through 14, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I've seen it all. I've done it all. I want you to notice that he says it's not just vanity, which means empty and unsatisfactory. But he says it's also vexation of spirit. That phrase vexation in spirit is illustrated of one who would strive to catch the wind. Trying to catch the wind. Psychology Today article that I read recently. It says psychologists who study vanity emphasize that it entails an excessive concern over physical appearance and achievements along with an inflated self-view. The personal costs of vanity go beyond the attribution of shallowness and narcissism that it earns in social life. He's saying that the problems, the negative effects, are not just that other people look at you like you're shallow. But I don't want anybody looking at me like I'm shallow. Or narcissistic. God help us. It's beyond that, though. Recent research findings suggest that in our efforts to maintain a desired public image through vain behaviors, we often end up harming ourselves in many other ways. Many other ways. Vanity is not just about the man who refuses to act or dress his age. Yes, that can be a man thing, too. All the women are like, I'm glad he's not talking to us today. <laughs> That's just men that deal with that. Women don't deal with that. 
It's not about a man who just refuses to act or dress his age. They cling to the cool look that they once were able to pull off. They continue to prioritize body image over their personal development. They seek the shallow end of the pool in life. Not seeing what everyone else sees, that there's just a grown man with floaties on. Splashing with the kids. <laughs> the refusal to simply grow up is holding much of our male population back. I could preach a 10-part series on how bad this culture is for men, but I'm just going to talk to men today about some things we need. I understand you're under attack. I understand men, husbands and fathers, are belittled, always put in as the ignorant one that always needs saved somehow in the media and in the TV and the movie screen. I understand the culture that we live in, but I'm not talking to the culture today. I'm just talking to some men today. The refusal to simply grow up is holding much of our male population back as they continue to chase after the wind. As they age, their inability to keep up with their own vanity begins to eat away at their spirit. Because in their view, the best part of their life is behind them. The best part of their life was somehow when they were free in their mind, free of responsibility, free of the burden and the weight of having to care for others, free of having to be the first one leading the way that others are looking towards, that others need. And so they live in this perpetual fantasy world that somehow they can recapture the wind of their youth, and it's never going to happen keep trying to grab the wind. It's not going to happen. David teaches some powerful lessons that he learned in the 37th Psalm. Some really great stuff. He says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Oh, hallelujah. Though he fall, and we all fall. Men fall. And though we fall, the Bible teaches us that if I'm living my life according to God's plan, when I fall, I'm not utterly cast down, but he picks me up again. When I fall on the path that Jesus has chosen for me, I'm not utterly cast down, but he helps me back to my feet again. It's when we fall going the wrong direction that we get ourselves in trouble. It's when we fall trying to forge our own path because that's what men do. We get ourselves in trouble when we get out of the will of God. But if I fall and my steps are ordered of the Lord, I'm not down for very long. We become good men. 
Somebody say good men. We become good men. The Bible says what good men are. Their steps are ordered and directed by the Lord. A good man is one whose life is surrendered and submitted to God. That's what the Bible declares, the eternal word, forever settled in heaven. That might not be what you were told. That might not be what culture is telling you. That might not be even what you believe. But the eternal word of God declares that a good man has surrendered and submitted his life to the almighty God and is following in the pathways of the Lord. We can call anybody we want a good man, but that's what the Bible calls a good man. David says there are wonderful rewards to such living. He says if we fall, we are not utterly cast down. God will help us back up. When a young man falls physically, when we fall, just, you know, we're just, we get tripped. We fall, not spiritually, not emotionally, not internally. I'm talking about we just actually fall down. Have you ever noticed what young men do when they fall? Not two-year-olds. Two-year-olds run to mommy or daddy and they need a Band-Aid. Young men, when they fall, tried to pretend like they didn't fall. They tried to turn it into some cool roll or something. Pretend like they wanted to get a closer look at that rock. Or the one that uh, you see a lot, they fall down, they start doing push-ups. I was going to illustrate that today, but <laughs> yeah, peer pressuring the pastor. I know what I'm preaching about next time now. I, was, I, could, I don't know that I would get back up is the problem. But you see that. I've seen that. I saw that just the other day. This guy, it was a sporting event, and he fell down. He did not mean to fall down. He was not pushed down. He just fell down. Great athlete, great, powerful, million-dollar athlete fell down, so he did push-ups. Okay. That's what young men do when they fall. When a mature man falls physically, they look for somebody. Hey, <laughs> little help. little help here. You know, I mean, we can do the cool forearm grasp. I don't care, but it, I just need a little help getting up here. When we get up, we can, you know, we can do all kinds of stuff. We can act real manly, but I'm, I, we got to get up first. That's the thing. Let's do that. <laughs> they look for a helping hand, and unfortunately, the same thing happens spiritually often. The immature spiritual man, when they fall spiritually, will try to hide and pretend like it didn't happen. We'll try to pretend like it's something else. We'll try to cover it up. But the mature spiritually will reach up. I need a little help here. I need one of my brothers. I need my family. Or I need my heavenly father. I need somebody to help me up. 
I wish to God that every man in this place would just determine within your heart today that when you fall, you're not going to be cast down utterly, but because you're going to be walking with Jesus, you're just going to lift up and say, okay, God, I, I made some mistakes. I've done some things I shouldn't done, but I need you to pick me back up again. And I wish that brothers in this church, uh, brothers in Christ, would know that one another, that we need one another. And when one of us falls, we need somebody to come over quickly and say, I got you, brother. It's going to be all right. I got you, brother. I'm going to pick you back up. Because I, when I fall, I'm going to need you to help me too. In reality, the spiritually mature will rise and move on with their life much faster than the spiritually immature. The spiritually immature will try to cover it up and pretend like it didn't happen, but that is not a solution to the problem. It's not a solution to the problem. And so they will end up staying down longer than they need to, or they will get hurt more than they should have, or get off on the wrong direction. But the spiritually mature, though they have to ask for help, will get up quicker and move forward faster. David is making a point about a mature life in the Lord, and he goes on to say that he's never seen the righteous forsaken by the Lord. But in the middle of all of these wonderful points, he lets us know that he crossed the river of vanity in his life. His need to be young was something he left behind as he embraced his future when he just makes this simple statement in Psalm 37 and 25, I have been young and now am old. He lets us know that there was a point in his life when he crossed the river of vanity and he said, I'm not going to live here. I'm not going to build my, my life here. I'm not going to raise my children here. I'm going to cross this and become the man of God, grow in my spiritual maturity, grow in my actual maturity. I'm going to cross this river. And he says, I acknowledge to you that I have been young, but I'm not young anymore. I'm old now. I acknowledge it. The acknowledgement of it is the first step, if you're wondering. The acknowledgement of it, that I can't do what I used to do. Now, you can fake it, but your back is going to tell you. Or your knees are going to tell you. Or your response time is going to tell you. Because unlike... The wealth that some men struggle with their entire lives to try to get more money physically, eventually, you cannot claim to be young anymore. Young in heart, sure. Young in spirit, sure. You like to laugh, nobody's talking about that. We're talking about the mistakes that are made in life because of vanity. The Apostle Paul was making a much broader point when he gave us this verse that showed he also crossed the river of vanity and moved on with his life in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, and I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I had to put away the childish things. Oh, Hallelujah. Verse most men hate the most. When I was a man, I became a man. I 
put away childish things. It is the putting away of childish things that causes some men to hesitate at the river of vanity. Not willing to have faith that the next stage of life has blessings all of its own. Not willing to embrace that the next stage of life can be wonderful and can be glorious. Not willing to embrace that they can have joy in the next stage and fun in the next stage and be at peace in the next stage of life. They hesitate at the river of vanity because they don't want to put their toys away. It's very hard to be a man who still plays with toys. Oh, you're real quiet now, aren't you? Real quiet now. Oh, yeah. As much as I despise our current culture's attack on men, and I do despise it, too many men have embraced it as a justification to become exactly what they are being accused of. Too many men have just said, well, if they're going to think of us that way, then let's just be that way. If they're going to think of us as incompetent, let's just be incompetent. If they're going to think of us as uncommitted, let's just be uncommitted. If they're going to think of us as never being around, then let's just never be around. You can't win this battle with the culture that way. And our ultimate battle is not with the culture anyway. It's with us. It's with us. The Bible says that there are men who should be able to teach and men who should be able to lead others who themselves still need to be told what is right and wrong. Hebrews 5 tells us, For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you still have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God. He says, you should be teaching others, but you need to be taught again. What? The very first things. You're needing to be taught again the very first principles and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those whom by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We need men who know what right is and what wrong is. We need men who understand there is a morality of Scripture that looks nothing like the morality of our culture. And so I have to determine in myself uh, that I'm going to be connected to Jesus Christ uh, so that I can determine, uh, as for me and my house, uh, we're going to serve the Lord. Uh, I can determine what is right and wrong, not based upon what the latest poll was, uh, but based upon what the Word of God says. We need men who know right from wrong and can teach it and lead others in it because they've crossed the river of vanity and can show others the way. They can help men who have gotten stuck at the river of vanity trying to hold on to youth 
And then there's the need to rule or to have power, and I go quickly now. Earthly, fleshly power always leads to the putting down of others. Earthly, fleshly power must exist alone, and it must be on top. The child's game, king of the mountain, is a perfect example. I must be on top, but I must be on top all by myself. And to achieve this, you must be removed. Anybody ever play king of the mountain? Kind of fun, actually. Men can struggle with loneliness and depression, living with secret weaknesses that they dare not confess, all because they think that the king of the mountain is the pinnacle of manliness, not realizing the reality is that if I have to be king of the mountain in that frame, then I have to be there alone. I have to be there alone. James concluded his third chapter about wisdom in James 3, 13 through 18, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but it is earthly, it is sensual, it is devilish. Bitter envying and strife in our hearts is earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated and it's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace with them that make peace. The wisdom taught here is that there is real power but it's in the hands of the meek. There is such a thing as real power. There is such a thing as authority. But real power and authority is not in the hands of he who has to kick everyone else down so that they can stand alone. The Bible says it's in the hands of the humble. It's in the hands of the servant. It's in the hands of the meek. Because the greatest among you shall be your servant. Joshua stood at a very real Jordan River. He was now in charge completely. Moses has gone up the mountain never to return down again. And now Joshua stands as the highest authority of the Israelite people on this side of the Jordan River. And he could have decided to build his personal kingdom on that side of the Jordan. He could have said, I'm in charge now. So we're going to do what I want to do, the way I want to do it. Moses is gone. 
So we're going to build my kingdom now. I have the authority. I have the power. My will is going to be accomplished. But he knew that God's plan for God's people was on the other side of the Jordan River. He knew they had to cross the river. Oh, hallelujah. God tells them to get the Ark of the Covenant and get the priests and have them pick up the Ark of the Covenant and begin to walk. And when their feet touched the water on the edges of the Jordan, the water stopped flowing and it went dry in front of them and they began to cross over. And there was a great leader named Joshua who was there leading the way, but there was also the priesthood who were carrying the ark, but there was also men who were told to gather 12 stones and build a memorial so that no one would ever forget that we crossed this river on purpose and we crossed it miraculously because we weren't going to stay on the wrong side of that river because the blessings of our future and the promise of our God were on the other side and there was going to come a day, it said, when your children are going to come to you and they're going to say, What meaneth these stones? And you're going to tell them how God miraculously delivered you out of Egypt and how God led you through the wilderness and crossed you over the Jordan River into the promised land. You're going to tell your children the story of the miraculous deliverance and provision of God. They're going to say, what does these stones mean? And you're going to tell them the story. You're going to tell them, and you're going to be able to say it with your head held high instead of having to try to explain to your children why, because you had this incessant need for power and authority and you couldn't surrender or submit yourself to God. You built your kingdom on the wrong side. Those with the poison of earthly power in their hearts are driven by that which is earthly and sensual and devilish, but they are also played with confusion in their life. I know I'm being very pastoral today. If you're a guest here, just thank you for being here. But those who deal with this issue are plagued with confusion in their life. They always seem to be confused about what they should do next, what the right decision is to be, where they should go, what they should do, how they should live, where they should live. There's always confusion. And God is not the author of confusion. And so the Apostle Paul was active in his life. He was active in his resistance of letting power corrupt him because the Apostle Paul was actually a very powerful man. But he was active in his resistance that it not corrupt who he was. And 2 Corinthians 12 tells us, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Don't think of me more than you ought. 
And what he learned was this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient. Paul says, God taught me something. I'm not going to glory in my abilities. I'm not going to be proud or boastful. I'm not going to try to operate an authority that doesn't belong to me. I don't have to put other people down. I don't have to kick them off the rock. But my God has told me that his grace is sufficient for me. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When I am weak, then am I strong. Why? Because I'm weak in the arms of God. Why? Because I'm weak in the power of God. Why? Because I'm weak in the authority of God. When I'm weak, then I am strong. I can have my power, which is fleeting and manipulative and shallow. Or I can have the power of Christ and I can be strong even when I'm weak. John Acton, a historian and moralist in 1887, is thought to be the first one to say this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The only antidote, uh, the only antidote to this corruption is humility. It's humility. Humility says, I can't stay here and build my kingdom because I'm a servant of the Lord. Humility says, I have to follow after Christ. And so the rich young ruler seemed to have it all until Jesus asked for more. He seemed to do it all until Jesus asked for more. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give it to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at what Jesus said. It made him sad. And he went away and he grieved for he had a lot of stuff. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? To all of our dads and our men that are here today, I, I don't want you to miss a key part of this encounter. I've endeavored today to follow the illustration given to us here by Christ, and I hope that you have felt it as I have tried to preach it and love I am not in any way saying that I am your example God is our example I've fallen more times than I could count and when I was young I attempted to do push-ups but I have tried in love today as Christ illustrates here to the rich young ruler the rich young ruler believes that he has done it all and that he lacks nothing. Then Jesus, beholding him, 
loved him and said, one thing thou lackest. I felt to preach this today because I love the men of this church. And I believe in a potential for your life that you may not even believe in for yourself yet. And if I love you like that, can you imagine how much Jesus loves you? If in my lack and in my inability and if in my ignorance I love you that way, how much more does Jesus love you? Oftentimes, men, we just don't know what it is that we need and God does and he loves us enough to tell us I love you but one thing thou lackest I love you but you can't stay here I love you but there's more for you I love you but I've got blessing and I've got strength and I've got courage and I've got peace but you can't make your kingdom here you gotta cross over the river into the promise of God I love you but there's some things that you're lacking ultimately what he says is is you've got to let go of everything that you think is so important and take up the cross and follow me Jesus says stand with me today please I would like every man in this room to come to the altar today every male person in this room if you would come today thank you for listening to our podcast this week we hope you enjoyed this message remember if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week.